0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand, Texas. Listen to the Raise Your Hand, Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast and the San Antonio River Authority. Rain washes litter into creeks and rivers. Join the San Antonio River Authority and put litter where it belongs. Learn more at sariverauthority.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for Friday, November fifth, twenty twenty-two or twenty twenty-one. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, my name is Matthew Watkins, managing editor of news and politics for the Texas Tribune. Uh, this week, I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Spitek. Hello. By uh, reporting fellow Neil Ambora. Hi. And by reporter Reese Oxner. Hey. Thanks, Travis. Hey, thanks for joining us. All right, so this week we're going to start off with some politics. Tuesday was the off-year election day in Texas and across the nation, and the biggest news coming out of our state was a special election in San Antonio's State House District uh, 118. Republican John Lujan um, upset Democrat Frank Ramirez by... I think about two and a half percentage points. Uh, that, despite the fact that Joe Biden won that district just one year ago by 14 points, uh, this, of course, came on a kind of broadly, I think, safely to safe to say, rough night for Democrats nationwide. You know, the headliner nationwide being Terry McAuliffe losing the Virginia governor's race in a state that Biden carried by I think about 10 points. Uh, so, you know, this this 118 race kind of carrying along with that national narrative. Uh, Patrick, you watched that race for us. What, what happened here? What, what went wrong for the Democrats there?
2: Well, I think what was notable about this race is that going into it, you know, both sides knew there was upset potential here and were taking it seriously. We, we've talked before about how Texas Democrats have been upset um, in San Antonio area special elections and they may have gotten caught off guard in some of those previous races. Uh, but going into this, both sides knew the stakes. Both sides knew it was going to be a very competitive race. Um, the Democrats were well aware that Republicans are trying to show new strength in South Texas um, after the 2020 election and that they would hold up this result if they won it um, as proof that they're continuing to build on that uh, those gains from 2020. Um, The Texas Democratic Party said that they were going, quote, all in on this race. And so that was kind of the key difference here compared to past special elections in this area is that, you know, as we said in our story, you know, everyone knew what was up. And so you had a forceful effort on both sides. Uh, The Republican John Lujan, I think, benefited from being uh, very familiar um, in this district and having pretty deep roots in in the community on uh, San Antonio's south side where this district is concentrated Um, You know, he's previously held this seat for a brief time in 2016 when he had also flipped it in a special election runoff. He's since appeared on the ballot there, either for primaries or general elections several more times. Um, And I don't think necessarily that, you know, Democrats think they had a a bad candidate in Frank Ramirez. You know, everything I heard about him was positive. He was young he had a even from the beginning had a pretty broad spectrum of endorsements within his party um i saw him a few times in the campaign trail very personable uh you know and, and seemed like a very effective messenger for the democrats just one of the big just objective disadvantages he, he had though was that the republicans uh raised a lot more money than the democrats did from the beginning of this race and there was more consolidation behind uh john luhan as the republican candidate in the runoff period, uh, you know, Lujan uh, nearly outraised Ramirez, the Democrat, uh, two to one. And so they had a, you know, Republicans both in the runoff and from the start of this race just had an overwhelming financial advantage. Um, and so that's, I think, what led to this, uh, you know, one of the key factors in this outcome.
1: Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned the the history with San Antonio special elections is not great for Democrats. And then you kind of see, you know, you often see, the Democrats then coming back during the regular election season and winning those seats back, you know, the, this of course happened with Pete Flores, um, happened, I believe, with the San Antonio mayor's race, which I know is a nonpartisan race, but, but, but right, there was a situation where uh, kind of a more known conservative commodity won and then uh, uh, a... Uh, you know, more more kind of democratically aligned person coming in later for that race. You also, I think, as you mentioned, we have heard a lot from Democrats about how there was a lot of big kind of national money going into this race. I mean, that being said, so I, I think you could, you know, I'm, I guess I'm willing to hear the argument that this is a one-off, you shouldn't panic too much, aside from the fact that you know, like we mentioned, the the things did not go very well for Democrats, kind of all over the place, right? Um, you know, in, in Virginia and elsewhere. Um, how much do you see kind of the alarm bells being rung? You know, in the in the Texas Democratic Party after after the result like this.
2: Well, I've heard some alarm bells when it comes to fundraising that Democratic donors could have easily stepped up and made up the difference in this race, and that there were Democratic donors that sat on the sidelines, but the. But most of the, the post-election spin, at least publicly from the Democrats, um, you know, has been that, you know, there was national money on the Republican side, which is, you know, to an extent true, but there was also national money on the Democratic side. Um, you know, they've also uh, complained that, uh, you know, Greg Abbott, the, the governor, uh, you know, structured this election in a way that favored um, Lujan, calling two very short special elections that favor. Um, you know, anytime we have a special election on a short timeline, it's going to favor the person who has, you know, is better known and doesn't have to spend time building their name ID. So obviously it favored Luhan. So that they have some complaints along those lines, um, you know, which fine, you know, I guess, I mean, you know, uh, so some of it I think is, you know, pretty typical stuff. That you know any any party should be should be ready for in a special election environment. For example, if the you know the, the governor you know is, is is you know is is of the party of the opposing candidate, of course he's he's going to try to make it um, you know fa- a favorable environment for that candidate. Um, you know whether it's a Republican governor or a Democratic governor. Uh, so you know that's been I think the message after this. Um, the one thing that I think is important to note is. You know this seat has been redrawn in the 2022 election to be more competitive for republicans and so this may be a situation where you know it's not a fluke where the republican lose then goes on to lose the general election this is going to be a hard-fought seat um in the november election next year and john lujan has a a better chance because of the republican-led redistricting process he has a better chance to hold on to it than he did when he won it back in 2016 in in an upset
1: you mentioned in your story about this race that uh, Lujan did not really touch on kind of the hot button issues in the state right now. Um, what, what what did How would you kind of characterize his campaign? What was his message to voters?
2: Yeah, he you know, if you looked at, you know, not just what he was telling us that he was talking about, but what he was actually spending money to advertise on, um, you know, he was mainly talking about public safety, public schools, um, you know, and jobs and, and small businesses. He He ran... Um, a pretty boring, vanilla, generic Republican campaign in some ways, Um, and, you know, he didn't touch some of these uh, statewide or or national issues um, that I think the Democrats, you know, had wanted to kind of box him in on. Um, You know, they, at least the messaging I saw from Democrats really wanted to put him on the defensive over uh, being endorsed by uh, the governor, Abbott, um, you know, whose whose statewide approval rating has really taken a dive recently. I haven't seen the latest numbers in that district, but I assume the trend is, is similar inside that district. Um, and you know, in, in interviews, you know, he did Luhan, the Republican candidate, did say that he supported some of these you know very controversial policies that have uh, been you know that Abbott's been responsible for signing into law recently, like the the near total abortion ban that went into effect in September. You know, he Luhan said he supported Abbott's ban on mask mandates. Um, And so he didn't really adjust, um, you know, away from those controversial issues, but he certainly didn't make them front and center in his campaign, if that makes sense. He was talking about much, much more bread and butter issues. Sure.
1: The other kind of, I I would say, concerning thing coming out uh, for Democrats this week uh, would be possibly our own poll, right? The Texas Tribune-UT poll that published this morning um, showing that, In a hypothetical matchup between Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke for governor, uh, Greg Abbott, you know, holds a nine percentage point lead, forty-six percent to thirty-seven percent. What's what? What's your reaction to uh, to what to what we saw coming out of that poll?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have what you know, I'm I'm calling the the two but scenario now with this governor's race. We've seen this in multiple polls, and it goes like this basically: we have a national environment that favors Republicans, but we have a Republican governor in Texas who looks as vulnerable as he's ever been, but
0: <laughs> his most
2: likely and most viable Democratic challenger um, has a very negative image uh, statewide. And so it's I think it's a really unique dynamic that we're looking at right now in this race. And to, to get into some of those you know, specific numbers, our poll found Abbott ahead of O'Rourke by uh, nine percentage points among registered voters. Um, It found Abbott's approval rating still underwater, um, 43, 48. Um, It found uh, O'Rourke's favorability rating even more underwater, 35, 50. And both of them, (laughs) if you get under the hood of those two numbers, both of them, Abbott with his job approval and work with his favorability, are doing very poorly with independents, um, you know, which can be sometimes a key uh, voting block. And so there's not much good news for really anyone in this poll. And it does reflect other recent public polling that we've seen that shows Abbott's vulnerable, but work's image is damaged statewide, um, you know, and if, if, if that's the case, if they're both... Um, you know, if both of their numbers are underwater and they're basically canceling each other out like that, I think it it just favors the status quo in Texas, which is which is going to be Republicans in power.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the 50 the percent disapproval for Beto O'Rourke, I think, was the number that stood out the most to me in that poll. I mean, you know, that's uh, this is not a situation where, you know, you see in the primary, for example, with Abbott, where he's facing he has a big lead over two candidates. Um, Don Huffines and Alan West, but you kind of look at deep into the numbers and you see that the the voters don't really have much familiarity with uh, Don Huffines and Alan West, and and Beto. I mean, obviously he's he's run for president, uh, might have done a lot of damage to himself in Texas. Win that run, you know, we we can all talk about. We will, I'm sure, hear many many times over the next few months. Assuming Beto runs, I guess we should put that in here too. He has not actually declared that he's running, but if, if assuming that he does, we will continue to hear that, you know, hell yes, we're, we're coming for your A- AR or, or I might have botched that quote, but that's the, the general um, idea of it. And you know, this is uh, this isn't a case of he needs to introduce him to voters. This is a case of he needs to make up a lot of ground after, you know, uh, the public opinion in this state seems to yeah. have shifted
2: against him. The one big I'll just my final point on this, is that, you know, I think people underestimate or just whether they underestimate it or not, just want to be emphatic about this, just in the span of three, I guess, four years in Texas politics, just how well-known and well-defined Beto work has, has come after being A central figure in the 2018 cycle and a central figure in the 2020 cycle, running for president in between those two cycles in Texas, having millions of dollars spent to attack him and and ruin his image. And it looks like it's been effective if you look at our polling. Um, You know, one of the the things that really stood out to me in this poll, because we also looked at favorability ratings for Matthew McConaughey, who, you know, is also being treated as a potential gubernatorial candidate. But in this poll, the results in this poll suggested that Beto O'Rourke is better known than Matthew McConaughey, which I think if if you look at the people who don't know, who said they didn't know one of those guys, it was actually higher for Matthew McConaughey than Beto O'Rourke, which I think, again, is like the fact that he appears to be better known statewide than Matthew (laughs) McConaughey, just I think is a testament to just how much he's rocketed um, from a political unknown in 2017 to being one of the most visible political forces in the state and he's obviously reaped the benefits that come with that and also the the damages that come with being attacked so heavily yeah that's really interesting for sure
1: okay neelam and reese i want y'all to unmute yourselves for a second here because we're going to play a game show here a very brief one in which i'm going to ask you a question about, so we have approve and disapprove or favorability or unfavorability ratings for a lot of different candidates in this poll, nine of which have been, uh, have held either federal or state office in Texas over the last, um, you know, in in recent years. Their names, of course, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, Dade Phelan, Ken Paxton, and Beto O'Rourke. Of those nine, only one ha- is not underwater, has a higher approval rating than a disapproval rating. Who is that one? Ooh. Do I get to participate in this? No, you, you you can guess after they guess,
3: Patrick.
4: Is it is it John Cornyn? I think I would
3: go with Cornyn as well, just as far as I haven't seen as much outrageous backlash in recent recent headlines, but... Um, and not draw? only are y'all wrong, you are very wrong. <laughs> John
1: Corbin is actually tied for Veto O'Rourke for being the most underwater. All right, Patrick, you get a chance now. Who is
2: it? Did, did you have Cruz, Ted Cruz in there? I did. Uh, and you're asking who is the only one above water? That's right. I would go with Cruz. You are <laughs> correct,
1: Ted Cruz. Oh, okay. <laughs> 45 approve, 44 disapprove, the only politician on that list who is above water. I, uh, I, I'm I very impressed, Patrick, that you got that right. So, so Ted Cruz has been underwater since our February poll, of course, February being the month that he made his infamous uh, Cancun trip, but he is slightly above. Every other person on that list is underwater, which I think... And, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, still under 50 percent on, on the approval rating. I think it's uh, it really tells you something about the state of politics in Texas right now that just like pretty much, you know, no one is beloved. No one is, you know, De- Greg Abbott used to be that guy, the one who kind of like was above everyone else in the approval ratings in the state and and now pretty much everyone you know, uh, is, is
2: down below. I found that, that particularly striking. His numbers are always so polarized and I feel like he is a unique figure, uh, in that his numbers are is always, are not necessarily as beholden to the national or statewide environment as the other, you know, the other folks are. Yeah, so that was the, the thinking behind my guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, Patrick, uh, what about the down ballot races Was did anything stand out to you in those numbers of, um, you know, uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, uh, primary uh, primary numbers that we saw there.
2: You know, not really. You know, broadly speaking, um, you know, the Republican incumbents are you know leading widely in their in their primaries, and there's still significant chunks of voters undecided or who aren't tuning into those primaries. So I think it's g- given, especially in like the. In some of the, the share of uh, voters who aren't tuning in yet, it's, it's a little premature, I think, to draw sweeping conclusions uh, from these primary numbers. But the, the one that caught my attention probably the most was the Republican primary for Attorney General, which obviously has drawn a lot of attention. You have Ken Paxton, the incumbent, facing three primary challengers former state Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, uh, Land Commissioner George B. Bush, and Fort Worth State Representative Matt Krause. Um, you know, Paxton's leading that at 48%. There's, but there's still, um, a large group of voters. I think it was like nearly a third, if not a third who are, who said they haven't made up their mind yet on that. You had Bush in sec- a very distant second at 16% and everyone else in, in single digits. Um, and if you get into the crosstabs of that one, you see just how well known of a name Bush still is in, in at least Texas Republican politics. Um, Bush is just far ahead of any of those other challengers in terms of name ID. And I think that's probably reflected in the fact that he is, you know, leading the the ballot among those challengers at this point. So those other people, Krauss and Guzman, have a lot of ground to make up in introducing themselves to statewide primary voters.
1: For sure. I mean, it did catch my eye in that race that Paxton is under 50 percent, of course, that you know,
2: which it is. But I think there were, again, somewhere in the area of 30 percent of voters um, who hadn't made up their minds yet. If I were him, I would be you know if that if that number were closer to maybe 10 percent or something and I was still under uh, 50, I'd, I'd be concerned. But given the large share of you know people who haven't have formed an opinion on the race yet and how early we are, I don't think it's cause for for concern for him quite yet.
1: Sure, that makes sense. you know for the the re- Republican primary for governor, we had Greg Abbott at 56 percent, Alan West at 13, Don Huffines at seven, Chad Prather at four. You know, it does seem as though for all of the kind of grief Abbott has gotten from a certain wing of the Republican Party um, and, you know, all the attention that we have paid to how, you know, uh, Don Huffine seems to be driving some of the conversation about policy in Texas that Greg Abbott, you know, continues to find himself in a pretty, pretty comfortable position there.
4: Yeah.
2: And that one, actually, more people have tuned into that primary. I think the people who didn't have an opinion on that was only 16%. Um, You know, one thing that continues to stand out in polling to me and uh, polling before this poll and this this poll we're currently discussing is, you know, Alan West um, is is loved by uh, Republican primary voters. His favorability rating among Republicans uh, in this poll is very impressive. I, I forgot the exact numbers, but I think the number number of Republicans who have a you know unfavorable opinion of him you know was in the, the low single digits or something like that, and the number with a favorable opinion was you know fifty and above. Um, but he's better known um, than uh, all, all of Abbott's other primary challengers, and he's pretty well liked. And so that's why I think you know even though we we focus so much on. Huffines in some ways, and we, we focus on him because Abbott, in some cases, seems to be responsive to him, so it's not without a good reason. Um, but despite that, Alan West may be the, the real candidate to watch. him
1: Yeah, Alan West. It seems to me his campaign has been a bit strange to watch. Right, he was so effective at gaining attention uh, while chairman of the Texas GOP, and it seems like the the two instances since he left and kind of announced his campaign that have gotten the most attention are both, you know. Instances with him or his family having some kind of you know
0: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. incident involving law enforcement, right? Like so, he made the news this week for uh, putting out a press release saying that he had flicked the mask out of someone at I believe Love Field, maybe no, no, it was DFW Airport in, in Dallas, you know, and then previously uh, his wife getting arrested on a DWI allegation, it later coming out that she did not have alcohol in her system. I mean, you know, but but by and large, I feel like, at least from my vantage point, I haven't really seen him out there
2: making a lot of news on the issues in in the same way that Don Huffines has. Well, I think he's definitely been notable, and this I think is an extension of what you're saying, for how um, he's not as aggressive in attacking Abbott as Huffines is. And I think that's probably because he sees the same exact poll numbers. Uh, He knows he's the best known challenger to Abbott in this primary. And he knows that he's, he's pretty well liked in this primary. And so at any time in a, you know, a race um you go negative on someone you risk your own favorability ratings people tend to like you less and so i think west for now is happy to sit on this name recognition sit on this goodwill with republican voters let huffines do the work of beating up abbott and and dragging abbott down um and so i think you know that that's a pretty to me that seems like a pretty obvious strategy um you know given these poll numbers that we see for alan west is you know appreciate the fact that you're better known and probably better liked um, and, and let the other guy drag down Abbott right now.
1: Sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors.
0: Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our state's bicentennial and beyond. Learn what we're focused on right now at texas2036.org slash blog and Texas Association of School Business Officials. Search our new job board for Texas educators or list K-12 through education jobs for free. Search or post now at jobs.tasbo.org.
1: Okay, so the other big news event happening this week, of course, were the oral arguments in the Supreme Court cases um, related to Texas's uh, abortion law, SB-8. Reese, we talked a lot about this last week previewing it, uh, the actual or- oral arguments, people came away, it seemed like thinking like at least a part of this law could be in trouble. Tell us
3: what you saw and what has people thinking that uh, after Monday. Yeah, for sure. I mean, going into it, we knew that the Supreme Court was going to take up um, especially the enforcement mechanism that comes along with Texas's abortion restrictions law. And so that that enforcement mechanism is, of course, the way it delegates essentially the enforcement from. Takes it away from state officials or law enforcement and puts on private citizens in the civil court system, and so we knew we were going to hear a lot about that. I think what maybe was surprising to a lot of people was how strongly some of the more uh, conservative-leaning justices pushed back against the state of Texas on that enforcement mechanism. Um, going into it, you know, a lot of legal experts were kind of wary of trying to predict where it could go. Uh, they said, you know, listening to oral arguments is one thing; reaching a decision is another. But after those two out, the two hours of hearings we heard, um, every legal expert I talked to seemed pretty confident that the Supreme Court is leaned toward ruling against Texas, at least in the lawsuit waged by abortion providers. And so what that could mean is we could see the Supreme Court rule um, limiting the way Texas is enforcing the law, which really will take the teeth out of the law for the most part. And so we're really waiting to see the Supreme Court uh, essentially can do whatever they want as far as make a really broad or narrow order. And they can also rule anytime they want. And so it's really uh, us waiting on their schedule to see what happens.
1: Right. So as you noted, and and as we kind of noted ahead of time last time, that a lot of the discussion seemed to center around the enforcement mechanism rather than, you know, the issue of the, you know, whether the right to an abortion should continued to be a right um, in the eyes of the federal courts. Um, the you know one thing that re- came up and that we discussed last time was the the argument that you know this enforcement mechanism where people can kind of s- any regular people handle the enforcement by suing in civil court and uh, getting a- rewards uh, for the enforcement of that, uh, could that be applied to other rights that are not acknowledge, currently acknowledged by the courts and that definitely came up in this, you know, you, you you highlighted this quote from Brett Kavanaugh where he said asks, you know, can you can anyone can you set up a law where anyone who sells an AR 15 is liable for a million dollars to any citizen. And it was interesting to hear the Texas Solicitor General basically say yes, right? That he he did not try to dispute that, and and I think that really kind of highlighted uh, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the problems, and and how we saw at least some of the conservative justices,
3: um, you know, feeling uncomfortable with this law. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Texas really did concede that fact that the mechanism that they're using in this law could be expanded to, to virtually any other uh, right that a state wanted to limit. And and we saw, right, even a, a gun rights uh, group come uh, and file a, a legal filing against the law for that same reason, fearing that it could be expanded to, you know, gun ownership or, or any other number of rights. And so that's really what dominated most of the conversation on Monday and what, you uh, the majority of justices, I think six out of nine, had really pushed back on um, this kind of idea that Texas was able to skirt judicial review completely, because uh, ultimately that was the state's position. I mean, the state seemed to kind of be resistant toward admitting that at first, but after some back and forth, I mean, they admitted during the court proceedings, yeah, I mean, the, in the state's eyes, the court has no jurisdiction over over this, and the only remedy would be if Congress would get together and change um uh, the whole system. And so that was what seemed to be most uh, maybe offensive to a lot of the justices on Monday and why we're expecting to see like a stronger ruling against that. Uh, we also did hear from Paxton after, and he, he even admitted, uh, right, like he, his his focus isn't on what other states could do, but he did acknowledge that that was a possibility. Instead was like, we're serving our constituents. And so doesn't seem anyone on Texas's front is denying that it could be used in other instances to basically restrict uh, constitutional rights Mm Yeah, and you
1: had uh, Justice—I believe it was Justice Kagan—who came in to that. You know, Congress could step in. You know, saying something along the lines of, "Like, I thought that's what a right was: was that you didn't need Congress to protect it. That basically, you know, it's it's established in in the courts and, and in the Constitution. So it was definitely an interesting exchange. Okay, so what are we what are we watching now? I mean, it's just kind of we're at the mercy of the Supreme Court here, right? Whenever they want to rule, they will
3: rule, and and we won't know. Yeah, when that exactly. All yeah, we're just we're really just waiting to see because they can they can ultimately come to a decision with with no uh, prior announcement. And so we might just have it drop at any moment. Um, there could be a chance that they they give us a heads up, in which case uh, it'll make our jobs a little easier to prepare for that. But Either way, we'll we'll jump on that and write the story when it when it comes. But there's two decisions, uh, essentially. And so the first one is on the enforcement mechanism, whether or not a state can can use that. That uh, type of enforcement to restrict constitutional rights. And then the second question was uh, more along the lines of if the United States even has the right to sue the state of Texas over this law. Because that's kind of that's what's gone into some of the legal challenges or the difficulties surrounding the legal challenges is who has the right to sue who and who can the court order to stop enforcing this law. Because some argue, you know, you can just enjoin it completely, stop anyone, anywhere from participating in the litigation allowed under the law. And that's kind of the point that the justices were wrestling with. And on Monday, uh, some of the justices expressed a desire to kind of leave that question unanswered, uh, saying that if they resolved the enforcement question and the abortion providers lawsuit, which was heard first, they could simply ignore this other more somewhat more complicated procedural question, um, and and that's presented in the Department of Justice case. And so we might see we might see a kind of split decision, right? Uh we might see some of the just the justices rule on the first case and allow that to continue, in which case it would go back to the district court, most likely. Um, but as far as the DOJ case, we might see that just kind of get stopped dead in the water, and then we'll have to just keep our eyes on the abortion provider's lawsuit. The the justices did uh kind of expressed an interest in treating uh, the abortion provider's requests um, early. And so instead of waiting for the district court to maybe freeze the law, uh, they even expressed, uh, one of the justices expressed a desire to treat the abortion provider's arguments as a request to go ahead and take action. So the Supreme Court could do that as well and go ahead and stop the law itself. And so, yeah, we, we're really waiting to see how broad their order gets, because ultimately they can do whatever they want because they're the Supreme Court. Sure. So,
1: Neelam, you have been following, you know, in large part since this law went into effect, some of the impact of this. And, um, of course, there. you wrote a, lo- a lot of people have, have made note of the fact that, you know, this law bans abortions at six weeks, which is oftentimes before a woman even knows that she's pregnant. And even if she does know ahead of time, it gives very little time for, uh, for a person to... Uh, um, you know, get the abortion before basically the um, what the authors of the bill term as the heartbeat um, can be detected, which is is basically when the when the ban goes into effect. But you wrote this week off of a study that seemed to indicate that maybe the numbers. Of abortions, the de- the num- the percentage decrease in abortions that has happened since this law into effect was maybe a little bit less than we might have suspected, right? Tell us a little bit about what that's that study said and, and what you're hearing from the the providers.
4: Yeah, so the study basically said that the number of abortions in Texas uh, dropped by half in comparison to other months and the same times last year, and um, what that means is that it is a little less than was originally expected. A lot of abortion providers were projecting that the number of abortions would go down by 85%. That's why we've been calling it a near total ban for so long. Um, When talking to the providers, part of the reasons for this is actually the amount of attention and awareness that has been uh, circulating around this law because there has been so many efforts and it's been in the courts People are actually being more aware when they're tracking their pregnancies um, and trying to not get caught by the law and, you know, catch things before that fetal cardiac activity limit kicks in. So that doesn't mean that, you know, it hasn't made this huge change. This is the biggest overall decrease in abortions in Texas um, ever, really. There's been a lot of different efforts from lawmakers to curtail abortion, whether it was the omnibus bill from back in 2013, um, but that only ended up having uh, a a small impact. I think the number was like a 13% impact, whereas even when uh, the governor's order that prohibited abortions at the onset of the pandemic kicked in, that stopped about 38% of abortions. So this is still a huge, unprecedented drop in the amount of procedures people have been able to get. It is less, but a lot of providers are also saying that with time, it could slowly get worse as people stop paying attention. And they're really just hoping for the courts to make a decision.
1: Sure, absolutely. Another thing that your story on this study, the study, by the way, produced by the University of Texas, um, found that the wait times at abortion clinics at many uh, in clinics in many states adjacent to Texas, seem to go up. I mean, that seems to be an indication. the The authors suggested that that we are seeing people traveling from Texas to adjacent states in order to obtain an abortion. Right?
4: Yeah. So it the wait times went up around two weeks, according to the study. And separately from the study, just talking to Planned Parenthood. They said that they saw more than a thousand percent increase in patients with Texas zip codes in those neighboring states. So that is definitely showing that people are still trying to get the procedures, they're just having to jump through a lot more obstacles. And this is especially hard because there's not that many clinics you know, in all the neighboring states combined. There's 15 clinics, and that's still less than the number in Texas. So this is definitely overwhelming the infrastructure and not necessarily stopping abortions rather than just pushing people out for them.
1: Absolutely. But of course, you know, part of this is, right, uh, some people have the resources and time to to travel out of state while others don't as well. So, um, you know, a lot to be paying attention to both on the impact of this law and whether the law will remain in place in the coming days, weeks, and possibly months as well uh, thank you Neelam thank you Reese and thank you Patrick for joining us this week thank you to our producer Mac- Michael Ray and thank you to our sponsors who I am pulling up right now and they are uh, raise your hand Texas the San Antonio River Authority Texas 2036 and the Texas Association of School Business Officials talk to you all next week I'll